The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. You're listening to Germ Warfare with Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Germ Warfare at tntradio.live. That's my email address. Thank you to everybody who sends me mails. Apologies if I can't reply to all of them, um, but I do appreciate getting them, and I will reply to the more interesting ones. Uh, and um, also, thank you for telling me where in the world you are mailing me from. It's just always mind-blowing to to see how far around the world my show goes and uh, also how small the world has become thanks to technology. I really appreciate it. We are streaming video now, 24 hours a day. So if you are watching, hi. Uh, I think it's on YouTube and on Rumble. Uh, but I think if you just go to TNT's website, tntradio.live, you should find all the links there. Okay, Alex, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. The facts, no spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies, we need the facts. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. John Lachlan, thank you for joining me in the trenches again. <laughs> thank you for having me. Uh, last time I physically saw you, um, I was actually on your side of the world, and uh, it was just before the Dutch election, and of course yes. now... Now everything has happened, and um, I'm trying to figure out if I should be celebrating or not, on behalf of you, that is. Well, uh, as you know, I work for one of the Dutch political parties, uh, Forum for Democracy, led by our friend, our mutual friend, Thierry Baudet. Uh, so I'm the director of FVD International. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the election result was not good for FVD because instead voters went for uh, Gerd Wilders's Freedom Party, who won, I think, 37 or 38 seats in the 150-seat parliament, whereas FVD won only three, down from five in the previous election, in fact, down from eight in the previous election, in the 2021 election. So it wasn't a good result for FVD, but of course, uh, among all the other parties, uh, the Freedom Party is no doubt one of the closest to FVD ideologically. It's a right-wing conservative nationalist party um at least used to be uh and the the scale of the result uh as i say 37 i think seats uh <clears throat> against uh, i think fewer than 20 for the governing party for the previously governing party which remains in power until there's a new election clearly shows that uh, people are dissatisfied there's no doubt about that that's why the result has been noticed obviously everywhere it's a very severe defeat for the incumbent regime. Uh, but uh, when you say, should we be, should you be pleased? Well, uh, that that's much more difficult question to answer because uh, 37 seats is a lot, but it's a long way short as well of a parliamentary majority. They need 76 seats to form a majority. And in order to get one, they need to uh, make alliances, obviously, with other parties, most of whom are hostile to the very things on which the Freedom Party was elected, namely um, clamping down on immigration and hostility to, in particular, to Muslim migration. Those are the big themes of the Freedom Party. So uh, it's quite possible that, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's totally possible that they will, it will take them many, many months. It could take up to maybe not a year but it could take uh, six nine months for a new government to be formed that's happened before in the meantime of course the old government remains in power or at least in office 
And uh, it could therefore be that, you know, nothing will happen for a very long time, stalemate, and then new elections. I'm not saying that the new elections will necessarily produce a different result. I think right now, if they were held immediately, they would probably give even more seats to the Freedom Party uh, because uh, people like to back a winner. But, um, uh, you know, it could also be that the cartel, Thierry Baudet, the leader, our friend, the leader, denounces mm. the party cartel, the cartel of uh, centrist, left of centre governing parties. It could be that they will successfully conspire to keep uh, Wilders out of power. So it's too early to say whether or not we, we should be pleased. Um, just as you said, talking about power my power went out and then uh, and then my my backup power kicked in while you were chatting so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> excuse, excuse, excuse the, the pun there. Yeah. <laughs> um look i obviously am a fan of the forum for democracy and and its policy proposals and w like you i'm disappointed in the performance and i'm just wondering why do you think their um support dropped slightly. I mean, it seems to be in line generally with 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 Geert Wilders. Uh, well, it is uh, in on many, on a number of issues, but also there are differences on others. Uh, the uh, one of the uh, well, there's lots of differences. I mean, for instance, on COVID, uh, Geert Wilders was uh, totally pro uh, lockdown, pro masks, pro vaccines, whereas uh, Thierry was against all of them. And indeed, I think Thierry is the only Thierry and the FED is the only, as far as I know, the only elected, Thierry is the only elected politician and FED is the only party that I'm aware of in Europe and possibly in the world that campaigned against all aspects of COVID policy. Uh, so, for instance, the Freedom Party in Austria campaigned uh, against the vaccine rules in, in Austria, so against the vaccine passport and so on, but not against the uh, lockdowns or against masks. Uh, and uh, Wilders was, as I say, totally in favour of, of all those COVID policies. On Russia, there's a big difference. I mean, uh, sorry, not a big difference, but there is a difference in emphasis. Uh, although Wilders uh, doesn't want to uh, give money to Ukraine, uh, nonetheless, he is pretty anti-Russian, whereas Thierry has taken a much more, I would say, pro-Russian stance. And of course, there's also a difference on Israel. That's perhaps the, the most recent difference, although I don't necessarily think that that uh, did damage to Thierry, because it's it seems to me incredible that people would uh, side unconditionally with Israel, as, as, as the political parties all over Europe have done, and as builders did. Uh, maybe I'm misjudging public opinion, but I, I get the impression that Israel is is not winning the propaganda war. Uh, no, I think that um, the reason why uh, FVD um, uh, did relatively badly and why uh, the PVV, the, the Freedom Party, did well is for, for there are two reasons. Firstly, uh, FVD being more radical allows uh, the Freedom Party to present itself as more acceptable as more uh, as more centrist because Thierry is is now as it were on the right of him of Wilders uh, but also for a much more banal reason and that is that people like to back a winner as I said this a moment ago you know if they think as they did because the the polls in the last few days uh, indicated that Wilders would do well he did much better than the polls said but th th there was a trend upwards I think people decided that they were going to back a winner and uh, and and that I think is, and of course also the the message is very simple. FVD is a is in, in to, to a large extent is a party of intellectuals, and uh, and and we like ideas. We we often have discussions uh, with each other. You know, we don't necessarily always agree on everything. Uh, so, for instance, within the 
uh, even within the parliamentary group, there are uh, people who are pro-Israel, others who are uh, anti-Israel or pro-Palestinian or whatever. Uh, whereas Wilders' message is much more simple. And of course, he's been around for a very long time. So people faced with the ongoing immigration uh, crisis, the ongoing invasion, I, we have to use that word. The word crisis is overused. It's it's an invasion. It's a, it's a criminally organized invasion. Faced with that, people naturally uh, vote, you know, for the person who's been hammering on about this uh, for the last uh, 20 years or more. When I uh, was in Amsterdam, I noticed immediately that there is an immigration problem. And it was bewildering to me that people generally don't seem to care. And I wonder if they're if they're actually aware of what this means long term. I, I don't think it's true that people don't care. On the contrary, I think that's the election result is a... Uh, Which is, is why, yes, okay. Um, right, right. I, I think that, and, and I don't think the, the word problem uh, does justice to the gravity of this uh, situation. Uh, in the Netherlands, which is a country of 17 million people, one million immigrants have arrived in the mm. last 13 years, one million. Uh, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, the figure for last year runs into the hundreds of thousands. You have similar figures all over Europe. In Britain, the uh, the number of arrivals into Britain, uh, post-Brexit Britain uh, in 2022 was one million. Now, Britain is a much bigger country than mm -hmm. the Netherlands, but still the arrival of a million people, and it's been running at many hundreds of thousands, 500,000, 600,000, um, uh, maybe not at that level for 20 years, but it's been running in the hundreds of thousands now for for 20 years in the British case and in the Dutch case and in the French case. It's like the arrival of an entire city every year. If you have two or 300,000 people and now five or 600,000 or even a million arriving every year, you know, the biggest cities in, in Britain are, apart from London, are, are, are only about a million. Uh, so like Birmingham, for example, uh, this is a uh, this is a, a movement of population on a scale that that really hasn't been seen for a very long time, and I I, I don't have the figures to hand for other countries, but I, I believe them to be similar. Uh, <clears throat> and we know, of course, that this is all criminally organised. We everybody knows about the gangs, about the amount of money that's paid, about the criminal networks that the arrivals uh, naturally plug into uh, when they when they get to to Europe. This is a, a, a and and yes, I do think that. I mean, I live in France. I'm speaking to you from Paris, and uh, there's recently been in France. Perhaps uh, perhaps everyone knows this, but there have been a spate of. Uh, of attacks, religiously or racially motivated attacks committed by Muslims of different nationalities against um, French, uh, you know, ethnic French people. You're not you're not really supposed to say that in France, but uh, people increasingly are talking in those terms. Um, and uh, this has, I think, led in in recent weeks, I would say, to a uh, a realization in France. Uh, it's it's not a sudden one. It's an incremental process that's been going on for a long time. But I, I get the impression there's been a, 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 a quite a significant change recently in a, as a result of these attacks. One of which uh, included the murder of a, a school teacher. So it's the second school teacher now who's been murdered. And of course the the attack on a school teacher is highly highly symbolic because the mm. education system is a sort of symbol of integration for from immigrants or at least a, a vehicle for integration or it's supposed to be 
Uh, all these things have, I think, led to an understanding among some people that there is a problem in the uh, there is an immediate problem, an immediate problem of insecurity, uh, and indeed that this problem will be a long term one. You're, in your question, you said, "What will this mean over the long term?" I think people mm. do understand that. Uh, some people do, not everybody. Of course, there's also a big uh, hostility, as we know, to discussing these things. There's the whole yeah. world of political correctness and so on. But no, I, I, I think that uh, unfortunately, uh, these these people tend to realise the scale of a problem sometimes when it's too late, and I think we may already. Mm be at that stage but but there is i think a, a sea change in opinion yes well that's great uh, so yesterday you and i were, were were involved in a panel discussion and and one of the um one of the guests mentioned that um it's not it's got nothing to do with islam uh, the immigration problem but it has everything to do with policy government policy i'm not sure i agree with that do do you yeah um i'm not sure i agree either i mean i asked edouard usson that question uh, you know, I'm, I was trying to moderate the debate, so I was also playing devil's advocate. Um, uh, I, I think it's a. I, 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 I think he's right to say it's not only Islam. Um, very often, uh, these terrorist attacks, if indeed that's what they are, because uh, you might also say that there was just a, a bunch of guys getting into a fight. Um, the, uh, but I think in many cases they are terrorist attacks. I mean, this has been going on for years. I mean, there was the one of the worst ones, obviously, the Bataclan massacre in a in a in a nightclub where hundreds of people were murdered, and then the horrible events in Nice. I think that was 2015 when a when a guy ran down a whole crowd of people, 80 or more dead, uh, with a lorry. Um, that guy, yes, he was a Muslim, but uh, his his own personal life was far from religious. It was the very opposite of religious. Uh, in my view, um, it is maybe connected to Islam, uh, but not quite in not quite in the direct way that someone like Wilders or others would say. In other words, not that Islam is necessarily uh, uh, itself a problem, but instead that these populations, uh, these uh, North, particularly North African, but not only because again the the, the perpetrators in France have been from. Uh, other parts of the world, not just from North Africa, but in the case of the North African populations, uh, very often, of course, the perpetrators are second or third generation. So it's not as if they're not, uh, not as if they're new arrivals or anything like that. Uh, I think there are other so uh, anthropological and social uh, causes, including, yes, of course, the failure of integration, the failure of of integration, the 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 the, the lack of a national narrative at home. In, in the individual European countries, the domination of woke ideology, uh, the effeminization, the effeminization of uh, public life and public values, uh, those things are, in my view, of strongly contributing cause to this uh, horrible decline into a combination of uh, machism, macho culture, including knife culture, uh, and uh, of course, uh, criminality, petty or otherwise, you know, drugs and uh, and knifings and so on. I mean, we see this. We've seen this for many, many years in London. The knife crime in London is terrible. Uh, whether it's necessarily associated with Islamic uh, populations, I don't know. But I think it's. A, I think, I, and I, I, but I, I do think the sexual dimension. That's why I mentioned effeminization uh, is important. I think in in countries where. Uh, as such as ours, where there's no, I would say, virile narrative, you know, the virile virtues, um, uh, 
um, um, I've forgotten her name now, but there was a, an American philosopher who used to write about this uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Those virtues are now uh, despised in, in Europe. And I think the, the, and instead Europe is, you know, in favor of peace and uh, tolerance and, uh, you know, all these feminine, female or feminine virtues. I think that, in my view, has an effect on young uh, Arab men, young, uh, young men from, you know, the council estates and so on. And I think that is that is one of the causes. So Islam is a factor, but it's not the only one. So Edouard is right. I, I think I'm sure we have a, a substantial area of agreement uh, here and I on this. But Islam is yes is also uh, is also uh, no doubt a contributing factor. I think it definitely was in the case of the murder of the teacher. In the case of uh, the stabbing by the Eiffel Tower, I think that was connected to the Israeli conflict. Um, and in the case of the, uh, there was a horrible murder in a, a village, a relatively remote village in the south of France, uh, where a young 17-year-old was stabbed to death. I think that was pure racism. I think the uh, the perpetrators there, apparently, so we are led to believe, uh, said they wanted to kill whites. So I think that was more, if you like, racist than than religious. John Lachlan, don't go anywhere. I'll be back with you shortly. My name is Jim. This is TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which is to destroy Hamas. So I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. John, just before we segue out of um, Europe, um, Douglas Murray uh, wrote a great book a number of years ago called The Strange Death of Europe. Have you read it? I have not read it, no, but I'm aware of it. Do you think that this strange death can be averted or is it too late? Uh, I, I think it's very close to too late. Um, I mean, I don't know Douglas Murray's arguments, 
but I think it is very close to too late. I think when you have uh, major uh, transfers of population, as we are, as I said a moment ago, as we're observing now, um, when you're having what is uh, called by some replacement migration, uh, in other words, the, the you know, in a generation or two, the, the ethnic mix will not be the same. Uh, it's already, of course, underway in Britain. Uh, indeed, it's it's uh, it's an established fact in Britain. It's been the case now uh, for 20 years that London, for example, and now now other the other big cities, Birmingham and Manchester, are no longer uh, white British, which is the official category. Uh, but in a, a, there's no longer a majority of white British people. Uh, I, I don't think uh, it's in the slightest bit controversial to say that that will that is an irrevocable change, and I, I'm personally pretty pessimistic that um, there can be any any way back from that. I mean, the British case is a little bit different. Uh, Britain, on the face of it, doesn't seem to have quite as many overt problems as, say, France. It doesn't have constant terrorist attacks as France does. Uh, so maybe it'll play out differently in different countries. But um, yeah, I mean, I think when you have millions of people arriving on your territory, then, you know, they 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 tend to stay. Who is actually, though, to blame? Um, it's very easy to point fingers at the immigrants themselves, but I, I, I'm hesitant to do that. I, I have a suspicion that we should look more to the sort of geopolitical policy framework. Yeah, there's no doubt that there is a policy. Um, if you take uh, the European Union, uh, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, gave a speech uh, only a few days ago at the beginning of December, I think, about how to combat uh, people smugglers, because, of course, these people are brought in, as we know, by criminal gangs. And she uh, explained in that speech that we had to uh, put a stop to this and so on. But actually, when you read the speech, as I did and I tweeted about it, uh, in fact, what she wants to do, and this, by the way, has been on the agenda of uh, George Soros's Open Society Foundation for, for many years now, uh, and indeed of, uh, also on the agenda of the Commission and no doubt of other national parliaments, what she, uh, national governments, what she, what she in fact wants to do is to render uh, illegal migration legal. She said quite clearly, there are millions of people, he, she, I'm quoting her, she said, there are millions of people around the world who want to improve their lives, who want to learn and work and so on, and come to Europe for that purpose. And she said, by undertaking these reforms, we will be able to give a, a new chance or some such other expression to millions of people. So she's talking uh, now in December, even after all these hundreds of thousands and indeed millions have been coming over the last 10 and 20 years, she's talking about millions more all right. So that is a policy. Uh, and I think it's a policy, uh, probably, uh, which is um, uh, chosen or forced upon governments in view of the demographic situation, which, of course, is catastrophic. There are no mm. the birth rates in all European countries are very, very low. They're particularly low in Italy, Spain and so on, Ireland, but they're they're low pretty much everywhere. And uh, you know, the the, the as as, I, as I'm sure that our listeners know, uh, Giorgia Meloni in Italy was elected a year ago, largely on an anti-immigration ticket, and, with, and within a few months, she had uh, uh, changed her coat and said that Italy and Europe need immigration. Uh, now, I, I was absolutely appalled when I saw this, and also I was appalled by her expression. Her physical expression because she looked like someone who was going through a sort of profound 
personal trauma, as indeed she probably was, because she was reneging on everything she stood for. And one wonders, you know, what on earth could have forced her to do it? One uh, colleague of mine, uh, an elected uh, member of, of a parliament, uh, speculated that she might have had a death threat, uh, because after mm. all, Italian ministers have ended up dead. There's a famous, the famous case of Aldo Moro in the 1980s. Uh, so that's obviously a very extreme speculation. Uh, alternatively, it could be that once she got into power, she looked at the figures, looked at the demography, uh, realized that uh, the you know the country can't function, or at least according to this theory, can't function without new arrivals all the time. But for whatever reason, I think it is, and I also think, of course, there's an ideological component to it. I think that the European project is predicated on putting an end to nations, on diluting nations, uh, diluting them, of course, uh, uh, transversely across Europe. But why not also diluting them by importing non-European populations? Uh, that ideology uh, was originally advanced in the 1920s by one of the uh, founding ideologues of a united Europe, Richard Kudenhoof Kalagi, he was in favour of that. He was in favour favour of a racially mixed European, racially mixed Europe uh, instead of uh, an unracially mixed one, as it was then. Uh, German politicians have used uh, racialist racial language in a, in a pro-immigration context. Uh, the uh, uh, the former president of Germany said that uh, to reject immigration would be equivalent to incest several years sure. ago so used literally used a, a racialist uh, uh, argument but you know back to front if you like so so i think it's ideological i i, I think it is I, and we know of course that the uh, the 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 smuggling the people smuggling gangs operate together with uh, ngos who themselves are financed uh, very often by european governments so there is a complicity in this and i and I, my own view is that, that there probably is a a, a desire for ideological and economic reasons to have these immigrants. But why, John, why do you think these authorities want this to happen? Well, it's what I've just said. I think they want them for economic reasons. They think that the demographic pyramid uh, needs to be uh, turned back around the right way. And I think they want it for ideological reasons. That's what I've just said, that I think they want to dilute <laughs> Uh, and indeed yeah. destroy European nations by importing foreign populations. That's that's what I believe. I do believe that. I haven't got a document that proves it. I've mm. mentioned Kudenhoek-Legi, who had the idea back in the 1920s. Um, but I do think that uh, given that, um, you know, Europe now for decades has denounced as uh, basically Nazi anybody who's opposed to immigration, I think that the pro-immigrationist... Um, ideology is so deeply embedded that yes i think yeah. that people want uh, immigration for ideological reasons after all yeah. these people wanted uh, and still want officially turkey to join the european union a uh, turkey mm. which is strictly speaking not a european country as of course a, a muslim country but is also uh, you know in most people's minds not a european country they they still wanted that to become they still want that country, once Erdogan has gone, to integrate uh, and join the European Union. It is a candidate uh, country and is theoretically scheduled to join. Yeah, I think I'm just in a little bit of denial because I don't... I, I suppose mm -hmm. I struggle with that with the argument that it's purely economic because the, the long-term prospects do not look 
economically viable, but I, I suppose it's not about long-term anyway. It is about short to medium-term gain. Um, and as you say, I, ideology always uh, is, is, acts as a blinker. So it, yes. it always gets in the way. Yes. And I mean, we've seen uh, uh, at the national level, I mean, it's absolutely, it's documented now and out in the public domain that uh, Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister from 1997 till 2007, uh, his Labour governments uh, specifically wanted immigration uh, and certainly encouraged it on a very massive scale. That, that Those are the hundreds of thousands a year I've been talking about. They wanted it also for for electoral reasons, for gerrymandering, you know, to, to import immigrants who would then uh, in, in due course be given the right to vote with nationality and so on. And they thought would vote, uh, vote for the Labour Party. So, you know, there are many convergent ideological and political reasons. Okay, what do you make of Javier Millet? Well, I hate to be a, a, a naysayer. Um, I mean, um, there is a, uh, there is, a, you know, some people think that, uh, you know, it's great that these nationalists or populists or whatever are cropping up uh, both in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, I am afraid I am uh, very uh, nervous about uh, what I see as, uh, well, Let's, you, we started off talking about Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. I, I don't want to go back to that, but it's striking, isn't it, that Wilders, Meloni in Italy, Millet in Argentina, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, to have some extent Trump, uh, Trump won anyway, if there's a Trump two, uh, all these politicians of whom it was said, oh my God, they're populists. Boris Johnson was a populist. Meloni is a right wing, a successor of fascism and so on. All of them on foreign policy issues, and that's one of my sort of main main areas of interest, are 100%, if not 150%, uh, aligned to the American uh, war machine and the American deep state. So obviously Boris Johnson with Ukraine, uh, Meloni has just announced that Italy is withdrawing from the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Wilders is, uh, has an Israeli flag in his office. Uh, and Millet has announced that Argentina will not, after all, join BRICS. BRICS, uh, yeah. of course, which has 20 countries, 20 countries, so 19 now, uh, but 20 countries that were lining up to join it. Uh, Millet has said he won't join it. That, that is a major victory for the American deep state. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether this uh, uh, thing of a right-wing populist who funnily enough turns out to support America or NATO or whatever to the hilt is not yet another card uh, that the American deep state has up its sleeve. You know, I've watched this for, for, for a long time. One of the cards the system has up its sleeve uh, is the jack-in-the-box candidate who comes from nowhere. Emmanuel Macron is a very good example of that. Uh, there's a guy called Omtzicht in the Netherlands. These people almost come from nowhere. They they create a new political party out of nothing, and hey presto, they get elected. Uh, I'm wondering now whether this uh, you know right-wing populist thing is not the latest trick uh, that people get, uh, uh, you know, as it were, that uh, you know that it is it is of course not everything is a conspiracy i'm not saying that uh, you know mm. it may well be the cartel as i say co conspires to keep these people out of power in the dutch case but 
But, uh, I, I, you know, all I can say is I noticed the fact that Millet on foreign policy issues, much as I might listen to him sympathetically on his libertarianism or whatever, uh, I don't know how reasonable that is in a country like Argentina. I don't know Argentina at all. But I, I, I do take on board the fact that uh, on foreign policy, these people all seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And the, the what, what's very interesting is that they're all sort of buy into that sort of Zionist um, narrative, which which just happens to be quite coincidental. Uh, and then the the absolute love for the US dollar. Um, but then he says, then he yeah. says things well, like, that's you know, another you aspect. Want... the idea that, that just as de-dollarization is happening around the world, that he will use the US mm. dollar as the, uh, it's incredible to me. In any case, Argentina already did that. They already had a currency board with uh, the US dollar. Uh, in, and that's what led to their <laughs> currency crisis of 1998 <laughs> with instant poverty, soup kitchens in the street from one day to the next. So I don't really get how dollarization, particularly now that the dollar is itself, uh, uh, let's not, perhaps going under would be too strong, but is is obviously Proceeding. increasingly weakened by debt and inflation and so on. Uh, it seems to me pretty odd to uh, to want to have the US dollar uh, at this uh, juncture. Uh, but also just, I mean, right off the bat, if you just look at him, he, he strikes me as a clown. Yeah. He's all over the place, quite literally. Yeah. yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't followed it closely enough, but yeah, I mean, he's, he, his nickname at school was El Loco, the crazy guy. And uh, he doesn't seem to have changed much since, uh, since he was at school. <laughs> I didn't know him when he was at school, but he does look a bit like a crazy schoolboy. So I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't pretend to be au fait with uh, Argentine mm. politics. Um, uh, the Israeli dimension is uh, very striking. Uh, yeah. He, um, he wears a yamaka at times. Yeah, he wears the yamaka. He wants to become a Jew and so on. Uh, I mean, f yeah, fine. Okay. If that's what uh, makes him tick, that's fine. But I, I, I find this. Um, I mean, I've I, I've personally not ever particularly uh, spoken on the Israeli issue. I, I went to Israel a few years ago for the first and only time. I more or less uh, preferred the Israelis to the Palestinians on a on a civilizational level, but that's just a personal opinion. But I don't think anyone. I mean, well, some people, but I mean, it's pretty difficult, isn't it, to uh, support unconditionally as people have done. Uh, the current military operation in Gaza, mm. it, I, I can't see how that's tenable at all. I, 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 and, I, and I don't think it is tenable. I think that world opinion, as far as I can tell, is turning you know strongly against this kind of unconditional support, particularly given the double standards uh, with between the support for uh, Israel and 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 the position taken on Ukraine. You know. When, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, it was uh, alleged that Russia was targeting civilians and killing civilians and all the rest of it. But that doesn't seem to matter in Gaza. I mean, everybody sees through all this. So so I, I would have thought it's a losing uh, gamble politically to, to do that. Okay, John, after the break, I'm going to chat to you a little bit about sentiment that seems to be changing across Europe. But for now, I'm chatting to John Lachland. This is TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. These are parlous times for liberty in the United States and for the Constitution and the rule of law. House Republicans have joined with their Democrat colleagues to oust Republican Representative George Santos, only the sixth member to ever be removed from the lower legislative chamber. 
Three were removed in 1861 after they joined the Confederacy, and the other two following their convictions of the crimes of which they were accused. Santos has been accused of fraud crimes but not convicted. This is a premature, preemptive strike by Republicans on one of their own, and it sets a dangerous precedent. Now, I hold no grief for George Santos. He seems, quite frankly, like a wingnut, but it's up to the constituents of his district to remove him from office, absent a criminal conviction. This is just one more episode in the long history of Republicans bowing to Democrat will. It seems as though when Democrats win elections, they get their own way. And when Republicans win elections, Democrats still get their own way. This is why we're so upset with the Republican Party. Grow a pair, stand up, and say no to the other side. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Right, I've got cancer. I've been trying to tell the rest of you, but no one's listening. And I don't just mean you, ears. Eyes, would you look in the damn toilet for once? Hands, roll those sleeves and take a sample. And legs, trot off to the doctor to get me looked at. Because bowel cancer can be successfully treated when detected early. Now look who's finally woken up. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So, John, I've got some data here from the BBC for what it's worth um, about yep. general sentiment um, across Europe in terms of, um, shall we say, nationalism. Um, Hungary is up by what appears to be 15 to 20%. Austria up by 26%. Switzerland up by 25%. Denmark 21% up. Belgium up by 20%. Estonia up by 17.8%. Finland 177 It just Every single country just about seems to show an increase in nationalist sentiment. To me, this is yeah. a good thing. Uh, yes, uh, I suppose I, I agree with that. I mean, I think in the case of Estonia and Finland, it's obviously within the context of the war in Ukraine and the the feeling that Russia is a threat to those countries. Um, in the case of the Central European countries, it's a bit less surprising because obviously the Hungarian government has been on a uh, nationalist uh, role now for for a long time. Austria and Switzerland uh, have their own dynamics, which yes, it have included, I mean, in, bo in both cases, uh, have included, uh, you know, nationalist parties, the Freedom Party for Austria and the um, the UDC party in, in Switzerland. You know, they've been in, they've been around now for, for 20 years. Um, so, um, I'm not totally surprised by those um, by those figures, and of course, you know, uh, we've mentioned the Netherlands. Uh, I think it's almost certain that in France, in the European elections, and not just in France, which are in June next year, there will be a strong showing for the Rassemblement National for the Le Pen Party. So um, I think I think this is all true. Where I'm um, skeptical, because I've always there's you know I always think that. Um, Every silver lining has a cloud. Um, uh, I think that uh, these parties, uh, generally speaking, have made themselves uh, acceptable over time, partly because they are now fam a familiar part of the political landscape. But also, I have to say, because they have put a lot of water into their wine, as, as we say in France. Um, so, for example, um, in France, the Rassemblement National no longer is no longer against the euro, no longer against the European Union. 
uh, nor is Eric Zemmour's party. Um, uh, these 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 uh, these country these political parties uh, have made a, a political calculation. They think that if they press on with anti-euro um, policies, that they will not get elected, which may or may not be true. But it means that they, you know, uh, are on, in a sense not attacking the problem at its root. Uh, and it it might well be. I mean, after all, if you don't if you don't re-establish national borders, which currently you you can't do under the European treaties, then I don't see how you can possibly control immigration. The the, yeah. the current immigration flows uh, date from the time when internal borders between the European states were abolished. Physical borders were abolished in the mid 1990s, and that's when the migration flows started because the border of uh, France is now in uh, in Lampedusa, you know, uh, uh, not not even a hundred miles from the African coast. So, um, unless you attack these things at their root, then you probably will not end up uh, dealing with the problem at all. Um, Britain, incidentally, is currently experiencing exactly this problem because Britain, uh, which of course is no longer in the European Union, is still under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, and that is preventing it from implementing its. Uh, anti-immigration policy and there's a big political crisis by the way in these in these days now brewing in in london on this very issue so uh yeah i mean the nationalist sentiment great uh it's all very good but it's a bit like what i was saying earlier about Millet and the, mm. uh, the foreign policy yeah. you know is this just is this controlled opposition is it just another way of keeping the whole show on the road uh, without actually um getting to the bottom of the problem uh, which is excessive uh, international government. I mean, we've gone so far, we've gone far too far in Europe down the road of, of international government. Everything now is done at the European level, and that means it's very difficult to, to oppose it on a national level. Hungary, you mentioned in your question, is trying to oppose Europe on one or two issues, and of course it has 26 countries against it. So it's, and yeah. there are financial interests involved, there are, you know, the subsidies and so on. So it's quite a difficult battle to fight. Okay, so in that vein, let's just as a thought experiment say you uh, became the head of the EU. What would you do? Well, that's an impossible thought experiment uh, for many reasons. <laughs> Firstly, because I'm not an EU citizen, uh, and secondly, because I would never agree to uh, be the head of the EU personally, because unless I, unless as you say, in some parallel universe, I. Uh, if I if I became it, I would uh, I would try to disband it. Obviously, personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you can't solve this 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 issue uh, internationally. The international institutions are precisely the problem. Uh, not just the EU, but uh, international institutions generally. They uh, are incubators for globalism. Obviously, you only have to look at the United Nations. Uh, or even yeah. NATO, for that matter, all international organizations, or all the, obviously the World Health Organization, all of them uh, are incubators for globalism. They 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 self-reproduce and they generate more globalism. Uh, each department of the U United Nations has an interest in saying that uh, X, Y, or Z is a global problem, needs global solutions, and so on. And in most cases, uh, this is not true, and instead. They need national solutions, and until the power of those organisations is undone, uh, legally and politically undone, uh, in other words, until certain treaties are denounced and people withdraw from organisations, then uh, unfortunately this whole apparatus will continue. 
And uh, one of the problems for nationalist uh, parties in Europe, and Hungary is very much uh, an example of this, is that uh, however nationalistic and patriotic Viktor Orban may sound, uh, he is not going to leave the European Union. He's not going to leave NATO. It's absolutely out of the question. Uh, and that goes for the, you know, conservative regime in Poland. It goes for the uh, uh, the nationalists in Austria and so on. None of them will uh, are, are prepared to leave the EU as, as Britain did. And even in Britain's case, we can see that uh, it probably didn't go far enough. Um, so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty mm. skeptical uh, because unfortunately the system still has a lot of life in it. Uh, the situation is serious, very serious. Uh, maybe at a tipping point, but unfortunately, tipping points are themselves very ugly in history. If there is, you know, if there were to be some kind of real breakdown in in law and order, um, that itself is an undesirable way of bringing about political change. Although, of course, it won't be the first time it's happened in history. Uh, so, not, as I say, I, I think this, you know, this idea that you can be hmm. uh, in favour of national independence but still stay inside these structures, unfortunately. Uh, it doesn't work, and you know we, yes, we've had this. Now. We, yeah, we've had this for for decades now. People coming one after the other, saying we're going to reform Europe, we're going to, you know, have a different Europe, a Europe of nations, and so on. It doesn't work, and you can't you can't do it. It's either one thing or the other, and uh, so you know I'm relatively skeptical that uh, any of these changes will lead to much. But we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, you have to try everything. Mm. I mean, I'm not looking for a hero, but do you think there are any um, individuals who are in positions of leadership around the world that can hopefully start changing the the the, the trajectory of that vector with some perhaps well, in, influence in, in some way or form? No, not in Europe. I mean, apart from obviously Thierry, our friend, but. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, he's um, not likely to, to be prime minister anytime soon. Uh, although I would devoutly wish it. Uh, no, yeah. I'm afraid I didn't. And that's that again. I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but I, you know, of course we spend. Our, I mean, yes, I actually I do look for a hero. I do look for for people who would emerge. You know, I my I grew up. I was a a teenager when Mrs. Thatcher arrived out of uh, not not exactly out of nowhere, but came onto the political scene in Britain, and it was very exhilarating. It was very inspiring. Um, but unfortunately, I, I don't really see uh, similar uh, uh, people uh, anywhere in the European Union. Uh, we obviously had the Trump experience in America, but that was disappointing in many ways. And and maybe if he gets elected a second time round, it will be more radical and more invigorating. But equally, America is itself teetering on the brink of civil war, one gets the impression. Um, there's no I do think we need I do think we need heroes actually I think we need heroes I think we do need leadership I think we need people who are both intelligent and capable of leading countries through difficult times and unfortunately uh, our political systems instead generate mediocrity and promote well, it. you you mentioned the iron lady uh, although not quite relevant but the segue is the iron curtain what do you what do you make of of Putin well, I, I am an admirer of him. I mean, I've uh, admired I admired him uh, in his first term uh, from uh, 2000 to 2008, I think the elections were. Uh, Russia was in a catastrophic state in the 1990s under Yeltsin. 
uh, his uh, term in office has been absolutely remarkable, uh, both in terms of internal Russian policy and in terms of foreign policy. Uh, now, of course, it's uh, it's I, I think about to be crowned because presumably he's not going to go on forever with uh, a victory against NATO in Ukraine. Uh, and you know that is that that is a, a, a an enormous his, historical event if indeed it does play out in that way, mm. um, for all kinds of reasons. Firstly, of course, because it shows the end of Western hegemony, the end of Western domination, the end of Western sermonizing. Um, it, it shows uh, on a more basic and fundamental level, if indeed that's what it is. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak too soon, but. Uh, it, it will show, I think, also the hollowness of NATO military doctrine, military doctrine and power, because uh, NATO has for decades been in a, a, talking about hybrid war and virtual war and the information war and all this kind of newfangled stuff. Uh, and instead, what we have in Russia, in Ukraine, is one country invading another country, taking territory and holding that territory. In other words, we have a very, a very classical war. We don't have some funky, you know, clever, clever new hybrid war. No, we have a real war involved in uh, territorial uh, aggrandizement and in the neutralization of a perceived. Uh, threat in the in the form of NATO uh, of Ukraine joining NATO, and if Russia succeeds in this, as I think she will against NATO, which has thrown everything it had, the kitchen sink, and God knows how many billions, tens, hundreds of billions to Ukraine, and failed, uh, then of course it's a it's an existential defeat, which uh, is backed up, as I hinted at a moment ago, by. Uh, de-dollarization by the emergence of a multilateral world order. Putin, uh, as I'm sure people have seen, was received. Uh, I don't know if people noticed this, actually. I only noticed it myself uh, recently. When he went to Saudi Arabia, the the, the yes. uh, welcome was phenomenal. But did you see who was waiting for him at the bottom of the steps at the airport? The king, the Saudi king who is retired, the 87-year-old Saudi king. Oh, was that so him? Yes, it was. You, if you look the, look at the video, you'll see there's an old man who's slightly stooped forward. It was King Incredible, um, the actual reigning king, not MBS, not the not the regent, uh, not uh, Mohammed bin Salman, but the king himself. And that he should go, this old man should go to uh, meet Putin is obviously a sign of the. It's a sign of you know deep respect towards uh, towards Putin and towards Russia and so on. Uh, and uh, you know, I've often, I've often. Um, like many people said that the meeting between Roosevelt and the current king's ancestor in 1945 on the on the deck of the HM, of the USS Quincy uh, as uh, Roosevelt left the Yalta peace conference the Yalta conference in February 1945 that was a symbolic meeting uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia and of course it's the symbolically it's the beginning of the petrodollar it's not quite the beginning of the petrodollar but it's it's a sim it's a symbol of this union uh, or this alliance anyway between america and saudi arabia that alliance is now over it's been yeah. over for a while uh, uh biden as you know went cap in hand to Riyadh uh to try to increase oil production at the time of the ukraine war and mbs told him where to go uh, and uh, instead uh relations have been built up with uh with russia uh, and of course with iran as well and china just so 
Yeah. So uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really see. Of course, everybody hates Putin, but I, I don't really see how looking at it objectively, looking at it in terms of, you know, increasing state power, increasing the prosperity of your people, increasing uh, your prestige on the world stage, all the things that leaders are supposed to do. I don't see how any objective analyst could come to any other conclusion uh, than that his uh, long period in office has been a, a historic one. All right, John, just quickly, as we come in for a landing, because time is now running against us, uh, just tell me your thoughts. How do you see the trajectory of uh, Mr. Gerrit Wilders in the Netherlands? Well, we can't, We have to We have to wait. Unfortunately, I think I said at the beginning of the program, it can last uh, six months. The And the incumbent uh, caretaker government has every interest in spinning things along. They're still in power. They're still, all the ministers are still sitting in their offices governing the country. So, so they don't really have any interest, I don't think, in a, a quick outcome. Um, and so, you know, my fear is that uh, they can will and can spin things out for a long time. Uh, it's difficult to see uh, them uh, agreeing to have a Wilders government, of bringing Wilders into power. I don't, I suppose I don't totally rule it out, but uh, I imagine the concessions that he would have to give to get that will be very considerable indeed. Um, and I also note, by the way, that on the specific issue of immigration, even if he gives ground on other stuff like Europe or whatever, um, there isn't a, a majority as it happens in the in the upper house of the Dutch parliament, which is whose whose composition has not changed because the provincial elections are on a different uh, calendar as they are in the United States. So, um, uh, you know, I, 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 he may if in the hypothetical scenario that he does uh, become prime minister and try to put a break on immigration in the lower chamber of the Dutch parliament, he may well get uh, blocked in the upper chamber. So, you know, we'll see. It may well mm. be that in six months' time, nothing much will have changed. Okay, quickly, how can I uh, follow you and, of course, the Forum for Democracy? So, uh, fvdinternational.com. Uh, on uh, X, uh, it's FVD underscore INTL. And I have my own uh, Twitter feed. Uh, and I'm obviously very honored and flattered if uh, if you and others want to want to see what we do. We try to be, uh, yes, a political movement. Yes, bringing patriots together, resisting globalism worldwide. We say fighting globalism worldwide. Um, like the flat earthers uh, convincing uh, convincing uh, <laughs> people that the earth is flat around the globe and so on. Um, <laughs> uh, but we are also, uh, uh, we like to be an intellectual movement. We are interested in ideas. We're happy for people to come and, uh, you know, raise their ideas and air them with us. So um, we hope that our ideas stand up to scrutiny. And I just want to say I had the best time um, hanging out with you and the, the team from the Forum for Democracy in October. John, it was an absolute pleasure. I will definitely be returning. Uh, the Forum for Democracy oh, is an incredible, it. it's an incredible organization. So, um, yeah. yeah, thank you. And by the way, and thank you for joining me today in the trenches. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. All the best. It's an absolute pleasure, John. Thank you, Alex and Joel, for keeping the show going. Uh, send me an email, germwarfare at tntreddit.live. I'll catch you tomorrow. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas.